Lotta. Hej Victoria och hej du som lyssnar och varmt välkommen till ett nytt avsnitt av Hälsosnack. Nu är det dags för ett sånt där superviktigt avsnitt igen. För det ska handla om matproduktionen och vår miljö, om djurhållning, koldioxid och vår viktiga matjord. För det är inget snack om saken att den nuvarande modellen för hur vi producerar vår mat inte är hållbar för varken jord, djur eller människa. Men som vi har pratat om även i tidigare avsnitt så finns det ju faktiskt klokare alternativ till det konventionella jordbruket och matproduktionen. Ja men eller hur? Och vi har gjort så många fel i så många led. Men det som är positivt är ju att det finns metoder som inte bara är hållbara i längden utan som bidrar positivt till både miljö och klimat och samtidigt ger människor och djur hälsosammare mat som ger både näring och energi. Och det kallas för regenerativt jordbruk. Ja, och idag så ska vi få träffa pionjären och eldsjälen Richard Perkins som är lantbrukare, utbildare och expert på regenerativt jordbruk. Richard driver gården Ridgedale Farm som faktiskt ligger i Värmland. Richard kommer att berätta om sin filosofi när det gäller att driva inte bara ett miljömässigt hållbart jordbruk utan även ekonomiskt lönsamt. Och genom att få en djupare förståelse för hur växter och djur fungerar i naturen så producerar Richard livsmedel till lokalbefolkningen utan stora maskiner, jätteinvesteringar eller statliga bidrag. Och att en lösning på klimatkrisen skulle vara att minska på köttkonsumtionen och äta mer processade produkter av till exempel vete, ris, soja eller majs. Det är också något som Richard starkt argumenterar emot. Ja, som ni hör så är det här ett viktigt avsnitt. Så snälla hjälp till att dela det vidare och sprida till fler. För om du också vill ha tillgång till näringsrik och närproducerad mat så behöver vi hjälpas åt att sprida information och stötta din lokala småskaliga bonde. Ja, och det kan du göra redan nu genom att börja handla via din närmaste rekoring. Och det kan du kolla upp på Facebook var någonstans den finns. Och det här avsnittet är ju på engelska och det är så matnyttigt att du kanske behöver lyssna fler än en gång. Och tack och lov så är det ju mest Richard som pratar. Eller hur det att det ska vara så svårt att formulera sig på engelska och speciellt i stundens hetta. Ja, eller hur. Men... På Instagram, att hälsosnack med Lotta och Victoria, där får du gärna titta in och kommentera det här avsnittet. Och dela dina tankar och funderingar och vad det här ämnet väcker i dig. A warm welcome on our show, Richard. Thanks very much. Nice to be with you. We are so happy to have you on our show today. Uh, we heard we, or we listened to a podcast interview with you and you spoke about regenerative agriculture, small scale farming, food nutrition and the healthy human diet. And um, it all just really resonated with us. And uh, we thought, well, we need to get this guy on our podcast uh, too. And when we found out that you actually live in Sweden, well, just let's just say we got even more enthusiastic. 
So uh, before we dig into all these interesting topics uh, today, can we just ask you to uh, introduce yourself to us and our listeners and just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and uh, why you do the things you do here in Sweden? Yes, um, thanks for taking this in English and remind me to talk slowly. I get very excited about these topics, so I'll try and speak slowly and clearly for the benefit of everyone. I have been on a long journey with this uh, small-scale farming, I guess. I went to agricultural school when I was 18, and I had a vision back then of building a sort of habitat to raise a family in. And so I went to agricultural school to learn about vegetable production, organic vegetable production. And my feeling was that it was at a very basic level that hadn't really evolved over decades. The things that they were teaching us were things that I'd already read in books, and I left with a lot of questions. So I embarked on global travels and went to find pioneering farmers doing strange things out in their fields all over the world. And I got a lot more interested in animal production and how to do that in a way that respects the physiology of the animals and how to, to employ those animals to do work for the farmer, essentially, by expressing their natural tendencies. And we've all been exposed to the horrific things that go on in the industrial productions of, well, both vegetables and animals. And so I really wanted to focus on how do you build thriving habitats that are creating a beautiful lifestyle as well as incredible nutrient-dense food for local people to consume. So eating within season and eating nutrient-dense food. And I think many people are aware nowadays that food today has a lot less nutrients per unit than it had 50 years ago. And it's also becoming incredibly expensive to even to buy poor quality food. So I've seen this massive shift in people getting interested in starting small-scale farming or producing food for their family. And so throughout my journey, I've been sharing and documenting my pathway and educating others in how to start doing this. And growing up in rural southwest of the UK, I always struggled to see how I would be able to afford land. And England is incredibly densely populated and land prices are astronomical. So I actually came to Sweden about nine years ago to teach a, a training with a friend who I had met teaching a training in the south of Europe. And I had no intention to be in Sweden more than two weeks, but I came here and had a beautiful experience and met someone. And also the property prices in Sweden were, they just blew my mind. I, I don't know if people here fully understands what they have at their feet in relation to most of Europe. Like land access is a major problem in Europe. I've got students of ours who are trying to set up small farms in center of Europe where property prices are running up to 100,000 euros a hectare, which is, you know, it's prohibitive for anyone to get access to the land. And I bought this farm. It's a 10-hectare farm. It's in Vermland, so it's quite remote. But it costs less than the garage would cost in the UK to park a car in. 
Wow. For a whole functioning farm. <laughs> so then I set up Ridgedale as a place with two distinct functions. One was to create a profitable farm and build soil and build habitat and produce amazing food. And the other was to use that process to educate a new generation of farmers in how they could do that for themselves. So we've had, over the last nine years, students from about 60 countries coming here, using this place as a springboard to try out in their own experience all of the different things that we're doing and to be able to design their businesses and go away and start up for themselves. So what's unique about this farm, I guess, is that I'm a big advocate of mixed farming. So when most people think of a farm today, they probably have a picture of a big wide open field and a big machine and a single crop, like a monoculture, which is disastrous for the soil and habitat and disastrous for economies and ends up usually being shipped out on a global commodity market. And I'm a big proponent of mixed farming where we have animals and tree crops and vegetable crops working together in an ecosystem where the byproducts of one thing feed another thing. And so we can create these kind of circular uh, pathways with nutrients and economy and build a resilient farm that is fit for the sort of changing climate conditions that are affecting farmers all over the world. And the fact that we made this farm extremely profitable and productive in the middle of nowhere with a small marketplace in a very challenging climate it it was really important to me because there's always that yeah but kind of thing you know can small scale farming feed the world and i think it's becoming clearer and clearer from un reports etc that farms like this are far more productive per given area and they produce a whole human diet rather than just a certain amount of calories. And so it's a very – the future I want for my kids to grow up in is towns and villages supported by hundreds of little farms around them that are producing what people actually eat. And so that's been my philosophy is train people up and then get them to set up 100 kilometers away and not compete with me directly, hopefully. <laughs> Great. So that's so interesting. And you've said already so many wise things. And I think we need to like dig deeper in a lot of these different areas that you've already touched upon. Like, first of all, can you just explain to us and our listeners? Because when you like the current narrative is that we should all just eat less meat to save the the environment and to save our planet. And uh, we should all eat more uh, vegan or vegetarian. So you've got all these monocrops with soy, wheat and corn. And like the current narrative says that that's the, the best and wisest way to go for us. But uh, we, Lotana, we just don't really buy that. And that's so refreshing to when we find other people that like um know knows a lot about this and knows the dynamics and can explain to us why that why that that's not the wisest thing to do sure i can completely break that illusion apart i think and that's what i spend a lot of my time doing it's it's a symbol to me of how removed people are from the landscape and from their food 
And I can see why that comes about. And if you look at social media today, and it's quite obvious that people's attention spans have, you know, been whittled down to seconds or minutes, and people take entire perspectives or points of view from memes, essentially, without really digging deeper into it. So a big part of my job is teaching people how ecosystems function. So some of those things that you see flying by on Instagram and Facebook would suggest that vegetable production, good, sustainable, meat production, bad. And that might be true of current industrial mechanized farming. But it's actually the complete opposite of real farming. There's nothing more sustainable than turning sunlight to grass to flesh. And what most people don't understand is that vegetable production is the most labor and energy intensive of any type of farming endeavor. It's the hardest to make profit from because it's just so labor intensive. I think I've noticed within this field, working as an educator and networking farmers to communicate together, I've seen a massive trend in vegetable production. And there's a reason for that. It's because you don't need a lot of land to make a living. You don't need many previous skills. And you don't need to invest a lot of money to start that production. I've got students that have started up businesses on 2,000 square meters and they're making white-collar salaries as a couple. And so that's very attractive for people, especially young people looking for this kind of lifestyle, you could say, wanting to live a simpler life on their own terms and, you know, disillusioned with the sort of nine to five they've been brought up with. I see a massive amount of young people coming into this field, but they are limited by previous farming experience and they're limited in their capital resources. So I think that's a major reason that vegetable production has seen such a boost. But essentially, if you want to grow, like if we look at soil, the fertility in the soil is equal to how much death has happened. So fertility is how much, how many things died in the soil there. It's life and death are two sides of the same coin, you could say. And to grow vegetables intensively, you need the byproducts of someone else's farm. You need animal manures. It's animal manures that make vegetables grow. And most people don't know that most of European vegetables are grown on industrial chicken manure from industrial intensive factory farms. So when you pick it apart, it's, it's a very different picture. And particularly larger livestock that eat purely from grassland and pasture, there's nothing more sustainable that you could do. Because the only thing that's being exported off this farm is a few minerals in bones. Whereas if I'm exporting grains or vegetables, that's a very extractive kind of agriculture. You're putting in a lot of inputs and you're, you're growing things that have been bred to just rip nutrients from the soil. And you have to put them back in or you turn that land into just a mere substrate of dirt that couldn't grow anything without those inputs. But then another step beyond that is the integration of different things together, animals that's uh, raised on pasture that can their fertility can be feeding fruit trees and berry bushes as well as gardens so something i do on my farm because of the long winters that we have here in sweden 
I will take the the greenhouses that I grow tomatoes and things in the summer. And in the winter, I'll bring my chicken flocks that they're laying eggs and I'll put them on bedding and I'll keep layering that bedding all through the winter. And that catches their manure and locks up the nitrogen. Like chicken manure is very volatile and full of nutrients that we want for our vegetable crops. But it wants to disappear into the atmosphere as a gas or it wants to run off into the groundwater. It's very volatile. So we use carbon like straw or old hay or something like this as a kind of diaper that catches that nutrient and stores it over the winter. And then we can take that out in the spring when the birds go back outside and we can compost that. And that's what we use to feed the vegetable gardens. And likewise, we have rows of trees all through our pastures and animals are constantly moving between those. And so the fertility from chickens that we raise for meat or cows and sheep that are moving constantly on pasture to mimic how they would move in the wild, their fertility is in turn going to feed these trees and berry bushes, which in turn are creating shelter and windbreak that protects the animals from the harsh weather here. So you get this lovely synthesis, and that's what I'm very much focused on educating people about is how do we treat a farm as a whole ecosystem and you know it's it's true in sweden just like every rich western country the typical age of a farmer here is about 65 and all of their finances are locked up in debt-based infrastructure big buildings big machines and the trouble with that is that they can't retire they can't get out of their profession and young people can't afford to buy into their profession so what i've been really focused on is how do we do this stuff at a human scale where we're not based on big machines or large amounts of debt how do we provide for a family's needs doing fulfilling work producing what people actually eat here and so i've been really focused on designing businesses that work together in an ecosystem but also a scalable and replicable. So I can have someone from Scorna come here and look at all of the back end of my business and adjust it to their circumstance where they're a bit warmer. Or likewise, they maybe come from Spain and they have different problems to deal with. And then we can adjust the business plan, adjust what it looks like on the ground to fit that time and place and circumstance. And we've seen... Well, thousands of students now go through the programs that I've been running on the farm and also online and going off and setting up incredible enterprises. But we need many, many more too, that's for sure. Yeah, wow. And it sounds also that it is good for the climate, not only that you replenish and regenerate the soil that binds carbon, but also that you don't need to use all those big machines to get the farm running. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important. Conventional modern farming is getting bigger scale, sucking up more and more land to grow less and less diverse crops with bigger and bigger machines and debts. And the trouble with that is most modern farmers are producing commodity crops like grains or milk or beans that they have no control over the price for their business. So essentially, they're running a business that they can't control, which is a pretty difficult place to put yourself in. And what most people don't know is most modern agriculture does not work as a business. 
it only works because the government subsidizes the production. So what I wanted to show here is I don't want to take subsidies because I think from a philosophical point of view, if we want to change how things work in our local food sheds, you could say, I need to demonstrate to someone from Stockholm that they can make a sub uh, a salary equivalent to what they would in the city out in a rural setting. And that's really a driver. If someone can see that they can have a good quality of life and earn a you know, modern salary, that's the thing that will create change. And so I'm a I'm from a philosophical standpoint, I don't want to rely on subsidies. I want to create a business that functions without those inputs. And then I'm in control of it. And the way we do that is producing high quality, high value products, but we sell them directly to customers. So there's been a big explosion of what's called Rico rings here in Scandinavia, and they're all over Scandinavia. And it's been incredible to see that grow. We set up a few of them around our area, and I've been promoting those on YouTube and things. And some of our students have taken that to different continents now. It's kind of like a farmer's market on Facebook where everything is pre-sold. And just for example, in Karlstad, which is our nearest city, it's 75,000 people. Last time I checked, there were 15,000 people in that group. So that's one in five people in the town has, has consciously gone onto Facebook and decided to join this group. But that's a lot of advertising for my products. That means 15,000 people can see everything that I put out for sale. And that's changing the way that people can do this small-scale farming because a big part of farming is selling the products. It's important that we sell products direct to consumers because then we make the money for the work we do. We can't afford to have middlemen, as it were, because there's not enough margins in, in what we're producing. And so Rico's been a really great trend where people have been able to just start farming enterprises here without putting any effort into marketing because it's like a ready-made market. And that's something that I'm not sure if your listeners will be familiar with, but it's a great way. If you have a, a good Rico ring in your area, it's a place where you typically find artisan bakers and people that produce dairy, meats, charcuterie, vegetables, eggs. And you can, if there's enough producers in the ring, you can do a, a whole weekly shop in from local farms within 50 kilometers or so, which is pretty amazing. And you can really shop all year round because it's, you know, what's um, available every season. Yeah, it's limited here with vegetables. I mean, people are quite used to eating sushi on Wednesday and Japanese, well, you know, it's yeah. we don't live in tune with the cycles. But here in Sweden, if you want to eat locally, the vegetables are reduced down to storage crops in the winter. And so your standard cabbages, carrots, potatoes, etc. That's the big, it's a hard thing to do in Sweden, you know, and we rely so heavily in Sweden on imported foods. And I, I get the impression that people aren't aware just how fragile the food system is here. And it's a fortunate country to be in that it's very sheltered from world events relatively and there's an illusion of an abundance of food when you walk in a supermarket that's that people don't always realize is based on 
very fragile supply chain. And so I don't know. I, I'm not that hopeful that people will change their diets consciously without being forced to by the changes that are happening in farming. And what's going on currently in Ukraine, people have seen grain prices going up 300%. And really, the biggest change, I think, is is going to come with the changing climate conditions, because what's troublesome with the changing climate is the fluctuations in weather patterns. And they affect grain production the most in continental Russia and North America. And it makes it incredibly hard to have stable grain supply around the world. And if you look in a, in a store, a typical supermarket anywhere in a Western country now, 95% of products are based on grain. And so prices of food are going to go up exponentially in the in the coming years. And I think that will start to shift people's awareness even more. But it's also great to see, like with podcasts like yourselves, there's a lot more people getting interested in nutrition again and seeing through the the sort of strange things behind the food pyramids that we probably all got brought up with that don't represent what a human's meant to eat. They seem to represent what commodity farming wants to shift on the market, you could say. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that because we also heard you talk about like uh, what did you call it responsible eating what does that mean so i'm i actually eat and prefer to eat a quite a heavily animal focused diet i eat primarily meat fat and eggs and a little bit of dairy and i eat some fruit and some honey so i'm on a quite a strange diet compared to typical people but Grains and vegetables, even though I came into farming through vegetable production, and I still teach people how to grow vegetables, these have always struck me as things that people have not eaten for very long at all. Like none of the vegetables you can buy in the supermarket existed 2,000 years ago. I don't think that people really think about that because a lot of people I talk to think that us as humans, we have always eaten a lot of vegetables and fruits. No, I don't believe that's true. So I've been on a big journey. I've always studied anthropology and looked at a lot of things to do with this. And it's very clear to me that humans develop big brains when they started cooking with fire and eating a lot of meat and fat. And that's the thing that powers a, a brain the size of, of ours. If you look at existing uh hunter-gatherer tribes they still eat mainly meat and fat particularly fat and are driving their metabolism based on that and they will eat some carbohydrates and some wild plants but if you've ever been out selecting wild foods like some of the natural herbs and things that grow around in every country they're extremely bitter often and they're extremely nutrient dense you can't eat many of them You know, people were not eating big bowls of green leaves. They would have been eating them medicinally and using them as to avoid starvation, essentially. And that's true today if you look at hunter-gatherers in other parts of the world. They're eating starchy tubers when they can't hunt something, you know, or if they failed in their hunting. Now, I'm aware that that's, you know, that's so far removed from how people eat today that it can be hard for people to relate to unless they're on that kind of journey themselves. 
But even back in the 1950s, the government recommendations were including a lot more meat and fat and a lot less carbohydrates. And I think the the thing that we're all clear about is that processed grains and sugars and processed foods are just not for human consumption. Seed oils, these kind of things. If you cut out sugar, seed oil, refined grains, you've got 60% of the way to vitality anyway. So, you know, I, I don't talk that much about my diet. I'm in a very fortunate position where I farm my whole diet and I can hunt and fish uh, for the rest of it. And I don't eat much grains. So I can easily produce my food, but most people don't have that luxury. Yeah, so the way you eat, does that enable you to, like, eat only what you produce and also eat seasonally? even yeah. here in Sweden. Yeah, now I'm able to eat 100% from what I'm either farming, fishing, or hunting. And like I said, that's because I'm not eating grain. I will eat some vegetables in the summer, but I really don't eat many vegetables at all. And that's a whole, you know, there's a lot of great research being done on this kind of diet now. And I think previous to that, there hadn't been much research you know, and a lot of the data around dietary recommendations is based on, you know, flawed data or asking the right questions in the wrong places. And so it feels like it's only been in the last sort of five, 10 years that people are really digging into the right questions. And when I look at people living close to the land, like you could say, hunter-gatherer people, it's really interesting to see. One of my favorite films is, uh, it was the first anthropological film ever filmed back in 1918, I believe. It's called Nanak of the North. It's filming the Inuits. And they're basically eating seal fat, seal meat, and salmon when they can catch it. And they eat zero carbs or, or plants. And I've seen the same with some of the African hunter-gatherers that are left there. These are people who are like, they have to work every day to secure their food and they can starve. Nanak actually starved to death after going out hunting reindeer and he didn't catch anything and couldn't get back. But what strikes me when I've seen these kind of documentaries is the, the sheer joy on these people's faces. They don't have existential angst, you know. They don't have time to sit around and, and worry about the things that we tend to. And you can see from their facial structure and their body structure, these are healthy, vibrant people. And, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see. Here, obviously, it's a very short growing season, so fresh food is is limited, but we have the potential for storage. So I freeze a lot of food. I ferment a lot of food and smoke meats and things like that so that tides me through the winter but it's it's a beautiful thing of living in a seasonal way is that the joy of each different crop like when strawberries come or when blueberries come or you know that brings such a rhythmical joy to life that most people don't have and it you know there's some element of luxury of being able to buy those things anytime you want to but actually to to look forward to strawberries coming for two months and then when they finally come it's it's such a different relationship that you build to food i think 
Yeah, and you must admit that Swedish strawberries or northern strawberries are so much sweeter than from other countries. Yeah, well, we're really lucky here at our high latitudes. Like some of the best berry fruits and medicinal herbs are grown in the world here because of our long sunlight in the the summertime. So you get a lot more riboflavins and and different beneficial compounds in the fruits here particularly, which is fantastic. So we shouldn't really need to import acai berries from the other side of the planet? Definitely not. No, people don't seem to, to, you know, this is all based on media promotions and trends and things. We have all the superfruit you could need here. You know, I think it was a couple of years ago I heard something about the Swedish government saying, there were like five million tons of blueberries that would not get harvested in the forests this year. And I mean, that's a superfruit. You know, we can grow a lot of the berry fruits that thrive in the Swedish climate conditions are superfruits. And yet people disregard those because something in a packet or, you know, it's a convenience-based thing. But it's very hard to change those. You know, you've got massive companies with huge advertising budgets who are influencing those sort of consumer choices so it's it's a difficult thing to turn i think yeah well we also like um other superfoods like um minced minced beef or minced lamb or uh, organs totally yeah i want to come back to that because you asked about eating responsibly so one of the biggest things that i think people need to reconnect to is the idea of anatomically proportional eating and nose-to-tail eating. So let's say I, I take a cow and I process that from the family freezer. That's, well, that's two big chest freezers to put a cow in. But most people will go and, like I've seen this in the meat-focused diet, the carnivore diet scene where people are eating steaks all the time. It's like, no, this is not responsible because if you take a cow you lose half of that cow through taking the skin and the bones and all the things and the meat that's left, then to eat anatomically correctly, you would have seven out of 10 meals are mince. And then two out of 10 meals are stewing, like, you know, slow cooked stews. And only one is like premium cuts. And so that's quite important because especially you see that if you're selling direct to customers, people always want to buy steaks and things like this and then you end up with a big storage full of mints so we always try to encourage that through selling like meat boxes where you can only buy 10 20 30 kilo boxes and you must that they're filled anatomically appropriately and then people are like thinking about organ meats i mean this is very clear if you look at hunter-gatherer populations around the world they will always eat liver raw straight out of the carcass as they've made a kill. This is like how it's the most energy-rich, nutrient-dense food you can eat. And all of the other parts of the animal are used too, the blood, the spleen, all of these things. So one thing that I could recommend to people is a lot of people don't like to eat these things anymore because they're just a little bit, you know, our palates are very bland in the modern world. We eat bland vegetables, bland grains, bland meats, like the, the sort of premium cuts of meat that actually don't have much flavor. But there's so many good 
supplements in that field now with like organ supplements of freeze-dried powdered organs and that's a really great way for people you know i've always thought if you're eating a good diet you don't need to supplement your diet supplements of uh, some inadequacy but if you can't eat organ meats then you can certainly take freeze-dried supplements and that's a really great way for people to see radical change in their health very quickly i think I also think you can train yourself because yeah. first time I cut into a liver, I was cringing and I felt the cortisol rise. I was really stressed. But after a while, now I don't mind it. And actually, I just received a quarter of a cow in my freezer. And I think that's a good way to pile up if something happens now. But mm. anyways, I took a kg of... Um, Uh, liver and my daughter was there because she kind of likes to touching it and playing with it and I had a kidney the other day she's like oh wow this is like what the stone age kids used to instead of slime you know and I'm like (laughs) fine you play with it I'm gonna cook it as well but but anyway so we tried a little bit of raw liver she spit it out but I'm thinking you know you start early and you train yourself Yeah, and learning how to cook them again, you know, finding old recipes because it's it, people don't know how to prepare those things. I got amazed as we produce meat chickens here. And 50 years ago, everyone would have known how to cut down the chicken. Now nobody knows that. You know, we have to train people in how to cut their chicken into pieces. And it's amazing the knowledge that's been lost in one or two generations. And I think that applies to organ meats too. People don't know how to prepare those. Um, But it's also that thing of having a bland palate. People aren't used to strong flavors anymore. So it's it's difficult. But that's like something that's, yeah, I, I just feel like, eating nose to tail and eating all the fats. Like people have been scared about eating fat. People have been brought up in our generation of semi-skimmed milk is good for you. It's like, no, that's pig food. It's not good for you at all. You know, like the fat is what you really need. And when I was processing a cow, I was uh, processing a cow last autumn with a, a butcher and he was trimming off all of the fat basically to, to make the mince. And when I I saw it out the corner of my eye because I was packing other cuts on the machine and it was 30, 40 kilos of fat, you know, to go into 60 kilos of mince. And so I put it all in there and it's incredible. Like it's when you're raising animals in with respect to their physiology. So our cows eat grass that they evolved to eat. They don't get fed grains in any way then you have this incredibly rich beta carotene rich fats that's yellow and dark and it's incredible you know so people need to i think it's it's really good for people to get exposed to local farmers to hear about these things because you can't really see that in a supermarket or you know people are removed entirely from what they're sitting in the packet and It's really like to be able to buy a quarter of a cow, for example, or it's a really nice way to get back in tune with what you're actually eating. And, you know. Yeah. And I also heard you talk about um, how a healthy egg should look like and how Mm -hmm. to raise hens that lay healthy eggs and that you can't really find that in the supermarket, even if it's... uh, 
if it says that they have a, what's it called when they like free range. Um, so tell us a little bit about like how should animals be raised to make healthy foods like the chicken and the eggs and, and the beef yeah. and the pigs, etc. All right, let's take a chicken. Let's take a cow and a pig. They're all quite different. So a chicken is quite removed from its wild counterpart. All farm animals that we have today are quite removed from their wild ancestors. But in today's farming, you have chickens for meat and chickens for eggs, and they're totally different things. One is like a turbocharged racing car. You've got to feed it very precisely, and it grows very fast. That's useful if you're producing meat for consumption, then these fast-growing modern breeds are useful, but they need very careful management to make sure their health is good. And same with egg-laying hens. They're designed to pump out eggs nearly every 24 and a half hours. There's a lot of stress on the, the body. Now, you can have old breeds that are, you know, people that have their own small holding with a few chickens in the back garden, they will have like old varieties of heritage birds but if you're trying to make a living you need to work with spreadsheets and numbers and and slim margins so we use high production birds but we raise them in a way that's they thrive rather than survive so let's just think about free range hens you know you can put those eggs in a green carton with a picture of the sun and a happy chicken and consumer will take those eggs and turn brain back off and away we go. And on the website of that big company that might have half a million chickens, you will see the sun going down and a chicken on its own walking around in long grass. That's not reality. Right? If you go on Google earth and you go and look at any free range chicken farm, you'll find a barn surrounded by bare mud and then a bit of pasture in the corners of the farm because chickens spend all day scratching to right feet to left feet peck 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 and so they don't like to go too far away from their nest and their home for safety so they will totally trash the soil around their barn now they have no green matter no vegetable matter they can eat there'll be no insects there so chickens are omnivores they need insect protein and so you're basically it's a marketing scheme there's nothing good about the egg there's nothing good for the chicken and there's been lots of studies now on nutrient density of truly pastured eggs with free-range eggs with battery hen eggs i was going to actually do that at this farm because it's an educational site too uh, but it cost about – I was going to compare our eggs with um, organic eggs in the store and cheap eggs in the store. But it's about 100,000 crowns to get a full nutrient breakdown. And it's already been done, particularly in America, a lot of times. So I didn't feel it necessary. I was thinking of it in terms of marketing. It's like, hey, do you want the best eggs? Here you go. And But you can tell, you know, it's – Eggs are like a gateway product for people. If you have amazing eggs, you can't go back to eating store eggs again. And so what we do is we have eggmobiles, and they're basically a little barn structure with roosts and nests, and we move them every single day onto the fresh pasture. So all animals uh, pooping, urinating all over the ground, and so in nature, animals move. 
It's a way of keeping hygienic. And the benefit of when they move is they spread their manure evenly over each little bit of ground. And so we have incredible grass growth because of that. And that's how we build soil. We grow the soil underneath and we get more plant growth on top. And the nutrient and water cycle is functioning again because we've got life back on the ground. And the birds are on fresh pasture every day, so they eat up to 20% of their diet is grass and herbs that grow in the grass. That doesn't, they still need feeding. We still feed them organic feed because they need a lot of energy to produce eggs, but they're getting all of this mineral and vitamin spectrum that keeps them super healthy. Now, we get inspected by uh, the authorities, the agricultural authorities here, and they typically are inspecting farms with 200,000 chickens in a free-range setting or this kind of thing. Every time they inspect our hens, their first comment is, wow, your birds are beautiful. They're shiny, they're healthy, they look like they should. If you go to a, a barn setting, they'll have picked each other's feathers, they look dull, you know, they're not vibrant. So there's a big difference between surviving and thriving. So what, what are you feeding them? We feed them organic uh, laying hen feed, which is comprised of grains and fish meal, like animal protein. But they will get a lot of their um, insect needs from the pasture. So we actually raise them moving four days behind the cows and the reason we do that, the cows and sheep run together as a, it's called a flerd. It's like a flock and a herd together. And there's a cycle of insects in their manure. So we used to, in the first year, we did the research of all the different insects that will you will find in the cow pad and how long they stay there. Because there's some very beneficial insects. There's things like dung beetles, and they fly around the landscape, and when they smell manure, they'll go down to it, and they will burrow into it, and they will take organic matter down into the ground. So that's really good for the farmers, is building soil through natural means. And after about 60 hours, they've done their job, and then they've disappeared and flown off somewhere else. But what happens is all the flies come and lay their maggots in cow pats and after 96 hours they hatch and they come and annoy the cows and the sheep again so we bring the chickens specifically at that time and the chickens within 30 minutes of coming out of their eggmobile in the morning they will scratch through like little biological muck spreaders they spread that manure everywhere and they eat those maggots which are full of omega-6 and 3 in the right balance for a chicken so we have to give them conventional well it's organic but the same feed that any farmer would give them but we're giving them all of this insect protein and fresh greens too and that makes a massive difference in the eggs you can see i was thinking i might do this as a youtube video to have someone cook me different types of chicken and different eggs blindfolded because i know i can tell the difference i mean I, I already know it, that it would work, but it's very obvious. The color of those eggs is rich and dark. They're creamy. They're just, you know, when we first started selling pastured eggs like this, we there wasn't really anyone doing that in Sweden. We've been teaching a lot of the people doing this now. And people were so excited about our eggs. They were sending us photos of fried eggs and omelets. Like, like 10 times a week, we would get photos of people who, sending us of their eggs <laughs> it's, it's, it's brilliant 
So that's how chickens are raised, like in a safe environment, moving constantly onto fresh ground. And they integrate with cows and sheep. And the cows are very particular because a cow evolved with a grassland. So grasses, most people don't appreciate grasses. Everyone's heard of tree hugging and protecting trees, but grasses are far more effective. We should have grass hugging communities because grasses are a big part of human survival on the earth. And what most people don't know, if you go on Google Earth or a satellite's image of the Earth nowadays and zoom out, nearly 60% of the Earth's surface is desert or desertified. And that's mostly human created. And it's created by taking animals off the landscape. So when Europeans went to North America, there were 60 to 100 million bison running around in herds. And when Europeans, you know, you can read reports from the Victorian era where the landed gentry from England would go to North Africa to the savannas that are now deserts, and they could sit on the back of their elephants and shoot 3,000 gazelle in a weekend. But think about that. If you fire a gun in a landscape full of animals, they're going to scatter pretty quickly. So if a single person can shoot 3,000 gazelle in a weekend, that tells you just how many animals were on these landscapes. And it's those animals that kept the grasslands functioning. So what's now the outer regions of the Sahara Desert and large areas of desert in North America, they used to have nine-meter-deep topsoils. Now they have a few centimeters. And all of that carbon, carbon is what makes soil work. All of that carbon reacts with the oxygen in the atmosphere and goes off as CO2. And so you have this sort of meme-based thinking where people are like, we shouldn't burn fossil fuels, we shouldn't fly. And it's like, yeah, we should reduce certain impacts. But people don't know that more CO2 has come from land degradation than all of that stuff combined. And it's livestock that can fix that problem. So when you look at a grass plant, this is maybe getting a bit scientific and technical but it's very interesting right a grass plant is different from every other plant if you look at a fruit tree or any of the plants in your back garden they the meristem which is like the new growth it grows on the ends of the branches you can see it if you go and look at any tree because last year's growth is lighter and softer but grasses are totally different they actually grow from the base so that tells you with childlike logic, they're designed to be chopped off either by a machine or an animal. And so they've co-evolved with animals and they need to do that. So when most people think, you know, of cows in a field, what you see driving around Sweden is the same as every other modern country. You'll see a big field with a few animals and very little grass. I have those same species of grass growing up to my head. You know, and now I've got very different nutrient spectrums. What happens if you, what most farmers do is overgraze their pastures. They stick animals in the field and leave them there all summer. What happens is the plant has to use its energy in its roots to put forward the little shoots. And they're like candy to a kid. Like your kids, if you gave them a bowl of liver and a bowl of candy, they're going to go straight for the candy. Well, so will a cow. And the cow will go back and, and take those little sweet, soft shoots. The trouble with this is that plant didn't get to photosynthesize and put back any energy. 
So now it's using its credit card, its root system, to go again. And so the farmer just keeps taking that. And what you end up with is topsoils that disappear. So when I came to my farm, the topsoil was about 18 centimeters deep. And you can see, because you dig a, a pit in the soil, and the topsoil is brown and rich and full of carbon. And the subsoil is lighter, typically, and doesn't have much life or roots. And by grazing animals, by moving them constantly, so think about those 100 million bison running around North America or in the savannas. People can't relate to these numbers, right, because... The, the most spectacular thing you've seen is National Geographic 4,000 wildebeest running along or something. You know, what does 100 million wildebeest look like, you know? And those animals are moved around by predators. So they're always kept together in dense herds. There's not 10 cows across a massive field. There's 10 cows in a tight spot moving all the time. So that's what we do. We copy how nature does it. We give our animals small spaces and move them every day. And what happens when you do that is they will eat everything because they haven't got time to worry about finding the best little sweet bits they want to take. They'll eat everything. So then they get all of their nutrient spectrum. They'll eat things that, like people say, cows don't eat thistles, cows don't eat this. Yes, they do. Like if you run them how they're designed to, to run, then they will eat everything. And then you have animals that are robust and healthy and they don't need drugs. You know, none of our animals need drugs. We never have vets here. We don't have sick animals because they're just raised correctly. So bunched and moving. And then that means that uh, we plan this grazing. It's very technical, but we plan it so that the cows and sheep never come back to that piece of ground until that plant has grown enough to have put back the energy that was used to grow whatever was eaten before. And in that way, we just actually build our soil rather than consume it. So nearly every farm in this country is consuming topsoil, and then their aging farmer is telling their kids, hey, farming doesn't work, go to the city, get a real job. We've actually built 25 centimeters in topsoil and can show and demonstrate that. And there's not many farms around the world that can do that. And that also makes the grass so much more resilient. For example, can you tell us about the summer of 2018? Yeah, that was epic. And I've, I've filmed that on YouTube. If anyone's into like the technical sides of that, then I have a channel in English where I show these things in detail and get quite technical about it in some cases. But so 2018 was, I think every year that I've lived here has been a record for something like the wettest spring, the driest spring, the hottest summer, like every year is a bit extreme. And I think the further north and south you go on the planet, the, the bigger shifts you see, like the fluctuations become more erratic. But 2018 was pretty special. We had here 115 days without rain. And we suffered zero loss of production. And what was fascinating about it was that by 1st of June, The slaughter facilities were booked up for the entire year because people were selling off half their dairy herds. They knew that they wouldn't have winter feed for the animals. And I put drone footage on my channel where all the farms around me are yellow and the grasses have grown this tall and then they've gone stunted and they are now just oxidizing and all of that carbon is going into the atmosphere. 
And just across the fence line in our farm, we've got grass up to my face, same species of grass, but we've built so much topsoil. We have so much carbon in the soil, like carbon holds water. So every time I put uh, humus particles in my soil, they can hold four particles of water to them. So if I'm, if I'm increasing my soil organic matter, I'm basically creating a reservoir of water in the topsoil exactly where plants want it, where their roots are. And then what we're doing by moving the animals constantly, we're actually not trying to eat all the grass. We're trying to smash a lot of the grass down and trample it. Because what happens when, if I take a grass plant or any plant and I break the stem, then it cuts the fluid movement and that plant will start to decay. So when we're grazing our animals, we're trying to A, feed the animals, but B, put down this layer of mulch, just like you would put mulch in the garden. And that creates this armor plating on top of the soil. So you, you have to like really break through it to even see the soil surface. And what was interesting is when I was making these little movies in June, looking at the yellow farms around and then looking at our pastures up to my face, and then getting down in them and just seeing that the soil surface was still moist and insects are thriving and moving around. And then I would go over the fence line and you would have lots of oxidized yellow plants with bare soil in between. And when you look down, not at the landscape, but down at the landscape, most of it is bare soil that's dried up and is cracked. Life can't happen there. So it really showed us how... It, it, it was like the proof of the pudding, as it were. It showed how our actions had created the intentions that we set out with, and we didn't suffer any loss of production. So it was a great demonstration of how we can use biology to fix these problems. And that's a really big part of ecosystem-based farming. You know, we live in a world where we have this tendency to believe that technology can fix what are biological problems, but it can't, and it never could, and history shows that clearly. But, you know, we've got some of the smartest people in the, in, the, in the best learning institutions on the planet thinking about carbon levels in the atmosphere and designing mirrors to fly up into space to reflect sunlight so that we have less, you know, it's like the unintended consequences of things like this are... are unprecedented but the solutions are surprisingly simple if we had all of sweden's beef needs produced in sweden moving around in this way building topsoil we would sequester far more carbon at low risk whilst making very good livings for farmers and producing resiliency for our food system but to do that we need a lot more farmers which is why i guess i went on a mission to educate people in these things yeah, and should you just tell us about the pigs too before we go ah, yes. more into why we need more small-scale farmers? Sure. Pigs are a forest creature, so their habitat is a forest ecosystem. And what I see when I look at ecology is that all ecosystems are managed by patchy intermittent disturbances. What does that mean? It means they get pummeled and then they're left to rest. So they have 100 million bison come running through, snorting, 
hitting the ground, breaking up old plant matter, shitting, urinating everywhere, and then they've gone, and they're not coming back for months. Same in the forest. Pigs come through. If you've seen wild boar, they cause devastation on the forest floor, but then they don't come back for the rest of the year. And if you go to that patch that was dug up, you'll see succession happening. Succession is the pattern of change in ecological communities over time. So if I go in my back garden and I dig up the ground and make it bare, what will happen is little annual weeds or annual earth repair mechanisms will sprout and start sequestering carbon and sugars and putting them in the soil, and then the soil life will get going, and then perennial weeds, weeds that come back every year, will come. And eventually a bush will grow and a tree will grow, and one day there will be an oak tree there. So that's succession, this, this pattern of change of living things over time. That's exactly what you see in a forest system where the pigs have turned it over. So what's been fascinating here, and I've documented this on YouTube too, when we moved to this farm, they had it was half the farm was monocultural spruce uh, gran uh, plantation, and that had just been cut down. So the, the forest floor was just pine needles and blueberries. And I brought pigs in as an ecosystem trigger. And the pigs dug that over. And then I brought cows and sheep into that to start bringing the guts biology from the pasture into the forest system. And then I took the animals out, moved them to the next patch, and have been doing that very carefully, timing it so the pigs don't cause too much damage. It's very much observation and timing-based, the way that we're farming. But what's coming back on my farm is oak trees, ash trees, linds, uh, all these beautiful hardwoods that you don't see in the landscape anywhere around us. I don't think people even know what natural forest looks like here because it's all human-planted monocultures. You know, and I would refer to that as a vertical desert. You know, it's just vertical stacks of toilet roll, essentially. It's, there's no diversity. There's no habitat. So even our forests here in Sweden are monocultures to a large extent. Yeah, 95% of the trees here are Norwegian spruce or pine. Yeah, that's a monoculture. It's really poor ecologically, and the way it's harvested is obviously catastrophic to the water cycle and to, to animals. So what I'm trying to do with my forestry is convert it back to mixed leaf trees that are much better building materials, and I can extract a lot more value by having pasture underneath those trees. So I'm actually, in ecological terms, I'm looking to create a middle-age forest that's lumpy in structure with different ages of trees, with grasses and shrubs that can be grazed underneath. Because that way, I, I know that, like we start to see in Sweden, the big problems now with wind damage and the beetle in the, the spruce trees. And we've had forest fires in more recent years. You know, these problems are going to cause massive changes in the forestry industry at some point because it's clearly unsustainable. But the trees that are naturally here are like so much better trees. I'd rather build a house with oak trees than with spruce, you know, it's much better. So what's interesting in watching that, and it's so fun to see because I've documented the neighbor's land that was cut at the same time and has just been left versus mine, and we've got so many more times species of trees 
and they're three times the height now, and there's no brush wood on the floor. The pigs have buried that, and that, so it's rotted and decomposed. And underneath this young forest is grasses and forbs that the cows have helped bring in. But it's so interesting because we didn't plant any of those trees. So those, you know, where did the acorns for those oak trees come from? I've got maybe 200 oak trees per, uh, per hectare growing back on their own. But there aren't any oak trees in the landscape here. So there haven't been any for probably 100 years. So the seeds are sitting there waiting for the climatic trigger to tell them, hey, now it's your time to wake up. And the pigs are that climatic trigger. That's the pig's that's function so cool. in that ecosystem. Amazing. And that's what we're doing with this type of farming, where I would describe it as I am the conductor of an orchestra playing a symphony in this landscape. That's what I do. And I'm using nature to teach me how to treat the landscape to be able to produce food that's still within the capacity of the landscape. But that is so fascinating also that when you work with nature instead of trying to control the nature or change nature, that it makes everything make sense and it goes so much easier. Yeah, it's naturally more profitable. It's much more, uh, much less work and it's resilient in the face of changing climate. And I think it's, you know, we live in a world where you'll experience the same in the health sector, same in education, same in economy. We love fighting symptoms, not the core of problems. And that's exactly how we treat agriculture too. So modern agriculture will say, oh, the global market price of cabbage is really good. So let's, oh, cabbage likes to grow in alkaline soil. So let's take a load of uh, lime and change the entire soil habitat to make it good for cabbage. That's like doing open heart surgery on a field, right? Oh, the market price for cabbage changed. Now we need to grow rapeseed oil. So now we need to put sulfur down, make it more acidic again. You know, we're fighting symptoms, not thinking holistically about what brings security to to a local food shed. So we're trying to go counter current and it's, yeah, there's a lot more, you know, I just see the the interest in these things is growing massively, but it needs to also be driven by consumers too that you know the demand for for this type of food is also growing and i think we're at this really interesting point where the way that we're accessing information is changing things like podcasts and people young people especially are willing to sit and listen to hours of nuanced conversations that's you know that's changing the world massively and i think that the people are demanding a lot more from lifestyle and from diet, et cetera, that's I've seen, you know, an exponential growth in interest, both from consumers and young farmers in the time that I've been here in Sweden. So Richard, if people listening are getting inspired or if we want to encourage young people and our children to consider regenerative farming as a career, how difficult is it to learn what you need to know? How how steep is the learning curve? And does it take many years before you can live off your farm? It's, I mean, that's a really big question, but it, it's an interesting one because what I've seen 
And what I feel like is that the future of this type of farming is going to rely on young entrepreneurial urban and city folk who have some kind of entrepreneurial business mindset who are looking for a different lifestyle, who are motivated to do it correctly. Because if you go to agriculture school today, the sons and daughters of farmers are not being taught anything about soil ecology or how ecosystems function. They're taught machinery manuals, application rates of different chemicals, designing businesses that are debt-based for the first 25 years, which to me is just crappy business. You know, It's like we're showing people how to do things where you see the direct influence of your work in everything that's around you. And we're focused on enterprises that make money from year one whilst paying back all of their investment costs. So it's a very different type of farming. But I I see that, you know, the data is that 95% of all small businesses fail. I don't think there is any data on small farm businesses, but it's probably higher than that. Like learning about farming is a very steep learning curve if you didn't grow up absorbed in, you know, practical skills and observation, etc. It's hard to learn that, but of course it can be done. And I think that what I recommend to people coming here on education programs is like, you know, we fire them up, get them inspired, give them a foundation and framework. And then I would advise them to spend a year working on a farm doing precisely what they can envisage doing. Like if you want to be a vegetable grower that makes enough income for your family, then you have to go find someone who's working at that scale in your climate zone in a similar sort of market reach and spend a year working with them. And that's like the most fast track way you could learn these skills. And and it doesn't, you know, we don't, we don't need to all be farmers. You know, what's important is people support their local good farmers that they can thrive and there's enough people that are coming into this that's i would say that just finding a way to meet some of your own needs you know children love this i get out the soil microscope and you've got like little nematodes going around that bite the heads off these other creatures like this is what kids love you know that's better than computer games and when you get them into these things they get fascinated by the processes involved and kids that don't eat you know carrots from the store they will definitely eat carrots if they've grown them you know there's a connection and a joy that comes with that my kids uh you know they are comfortable even coming in slaughtering animals chickens they collect eggs they're you know they're, they're growing up very directly connected to these things and they're not removed in like they're not squeamish about things they understand life and death in a pretty comprehensive way and it's just a very wholesome you know, it's a hard life in some ways, and most people aren't really up for that anymore because it's very nice to be, you know, the world is set up so conveniently. But I think the the main reason I got involved in this lifestyle is that it fulfills my creative needs more than any other profession I could think of. Like I'm a plumber, electrician, botanist, a vet, you know, microbiologist, a physicist, a chemist, and I just get to play in this landscape, and it's super rewarding and fulfilling. And 
the things you learn from observation and seeing things through cycles and staying with things and discipline, these are, you know, super valuable life skills. Like if you have an animal, even a chicken in your back garden that you have in a pen, it's like you just put its its needs above your own. It's like you need to care for it, take care of it. And I think kids really enjoy that sort of thing. So I think there's different ways into that. You know, a lot of people would just benefit from doing a little bit in the back garden that fits their lifestyle, you know, to grow a little bit of fresh salads or have eggs or these kind of things. It's super rewarding. Everything, anything that that get, gets you closer to where your food comes from. Yeah. And that typically starts a snowballing for people. Like, you know, when people realize what they've been missing, they start to get much deeper into these things. And that's because we are a health podcast. We talk mostly about health, but... Um, we see a risk in society, uh, not only in um, the big companies promoting uh, store-bought processed food, but also that the lack of good farmers and we we need to care for our soil because it's going to be a big problem, a huge problem. Like yeah. it is a big problem, but it's going to yeah. be um, humongous in a few years. So, uh, and in order for us to promote health. This is like the base, you know, and I know other health uh, people talk about this, you know, get your, uh, make sure you have a good farmer. You don't need a doctor. You need a farmer to get your food. Yep. That's like the base of the health. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's like another thing of us fighting symptoms, not causes, right? People have a very weird relationship to health and sickness doctors know more about illness than health typically and it's just unprecedented how many people are using essentially drugs to deal with what are lifestyle problems and yeah i don't know i'm quite removed from that but one thing i do it makes me think of is that i've been lucky enough to go to pristine as far as can be pristine habitats left on the planet and the first thing that strikes you is that disease and illness are extremely rare in nature and they only function to turn something that's finished its life that's not useful anymore back into nutrients for other things like if you go to the old growth forests in washington etc you don't see illness and disease and yet for us in the human context it's very You know, it's like we expect it almost. And I think people are quite removed from what true vibrance and health looks like, you know. Ah. Yeah, and I'm so also, of course, I eat uh, mince and eggs for breakfast every day. So, uh, and uh, we're so grateful to have you to also talk about this because, as you said in the beginning, this it turns people's head around. You know, mm -hmm. oh, are you supposed to eat that much meat for your health? Uh, that can't be true. But uh, yeah, try it. Try to get more protein in and see how your mood and how your energy level uh, changes during the day or stay the same pretty much this, uh, during mm. the day try to eat some organs try to get those nutrients in uh, but isn't it the vegetables that have all the vitamins and minerals well no <laughs> so yeah that's really it can't be said enough now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And also, like, the other elements of health, I guess you talk about, like, with, like, intermittent fasting. What I've noticed with this diet is I eat so much less than most people. And I watch all the people that come here, like employees and people on trainings, and I watch people that eat three or four times what I eat. And then after eating, they just have to rest a bit or sleep a bit. And I can eat and just go and work physically the rest of the day. So I'm typically eating twice a day within like a a five or six hour window. And fasting throughout the year, I think that's something to be said for you know all wild animals fast when they get sick etc and i guess you guys talk about like sleep and circadian rhythms and all of these kind of things that's all part of it and it's why another reason why i think people should go make the effort to meet their farmers especially up here in scandinavia with rico rings where it's easy to do that because most of the people engaged in this kind of food production are pretty interesting, lovely people, you know, and that's why they've got involved in it. Yeah, that's a great one. But Richard, um, we have two questions that we ask all our guests. And since this is a health podcast, they have a little bit more to do with health. And the first one is if you have a daily ritual or um, routine that makes you feel good that you do and that you want to share with us. I don't really have one, but I try and stick to like eating in the five-hour window. So I eat at eleven o'clock and at about five o'clock, and to sleep and wake at regular times. And also like to get myself in sunlight and be out and about during the day. That's a good one, and this is the hard one. If you can or are allowed to only do one thing for your health, what would that be? Cut out all processed foods. Perfect. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be more uh, complicated than that. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, we lost Victoria, but um, um, I know we are both very grateful for having you on this show. And good luck uh, with, your, with the future. And hopefully this will spread and get more uh, farmers doing uh, farming this way. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for what you do and it's a pleasure to join you. And if uh, people want to learn more about you and your courses, where can they find find you? Uh, There's a few places. I have a YouTube channel. If you look up Ridgedale Farm, you'll find that. And that's like a vlog-based channel showing how we do all the things that happen on the farm. I can plug my book. It's in English. But this is specifically for people that want to know how to do this stuff. It's a manual for people that want to start farming. It's not really a book you read. It's a manual. And it's called Regenerative Agriculture. Regenerative Agriculture, yeah. And you can find out about trainings I do at richardperkins.co. Good. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks very much.